So today's Bible reading is Exodus 25 verses 1 to 22 and Exodus 28 verses 4 to 12. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from them, from, from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet yawn. And fine linen. Goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather. Achaya wood. Olive oil for the light. Spices for the anointing oil. And for the fragrant incense. And onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Have them make an ark of a wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it, and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of a chai wood, and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of the, this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put, the ark, put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There, Above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Now Exodus 28, starting at verse 4. These are the garments they are to make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen. Make the ephod of gold and of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and of finely twisted linen. The work of skilled hands. It is to have two shoulder pieces attached to two of its corners so it can be fastened. 
its skillfully woven waistband is to be like it, of one piece with the ephod and made with gold, and with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and with finely twisted linen. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel in the order of their birth, six names on one stone and the remaining six on the other. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones, the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Then mount the stones in gold filigree settings and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. This is God's word. Thanks, Jana, very much for reading that. Do keep that open. Um, turn back to chapter 25 of Exodus, and um, we're looking at seven chapters of Exodus, chapter 25 through to 31, but as we're trying to go through the whole book of Exodus, inevitably we'll need to go a bit quicker through some bits, but we're looking today at the tabernacle and trying to understand the importance of the tabernacle and what it means for us as we live today. Um, as we do that, why don't I lead us in a prayer that God would speak to us? So can I invite you to bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the Exodus. Thank you for all that it teaches us about who you are and what it means to know you and to be your people. Help us to understand that today. Help us to grasp the importance for our lives and the lives of London around us, Lord God. Speak to us, we pray, by your spirit, through your word, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, look, I don't know what you think when someone asks you, if you're a Christian here, what it means to be a Christian, or maybe if you're a guest coming and looking in, you're very welcome, by the way, it's great you're here, but I wonder what you think um, a person who would call themselves a Christian is. Often when we think of a, a Christian, we default to descriptions of things that Christians do, maybe accurate or inaccurate, but things like saying prayers, reading the Bible, coming along to church. And the thing with um, describing what someone is according to what they do is it's quite functional. Um, it's quite cold. It doesn't really capture the fullness of what it means. For example, if um, you said, tell me about your wife, and I just started listing all the things that she does... It could make us sound a bit like, I don't know, a, a crash mixed with a household appliance mixed with someone that, you know, keeps you on the straight and narrow. But none of that really gets to the heart of who she is, uh, what she means and, what she, and how she matters to me. Um, functional descriptions are quite robotic, you know, quite Android-esque. And as anyone who's watched um, the, Wizard of Oz, the Wizard of Oz knows, tin men don't have hearts. And so it really lacks the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Well, what we get in this um, instant with the tabernacle and the erection of the tabernacle and all of God's descriptions about it is really the foundational thing that it means to be one of God's people. And right at the heart of it is all about having the presence of God, the presence of the very true and living God in your life. That was what the tabernacle was all about, having God dwell with his people. We're going to see why that's so significant. We're going to see what that means for our lives today and also why that is such a huge privilege. Let's look first at the blessing of God's presence as we think about it together. Uh, look with me, if you've um, turned away from it, come back to page 83 and look with me at chapter 25 and verse 8. Right at the heart of the tabernacle is all about meeting with God and experiencing his presence. Chapter 25, verse 8 on page 83. Then let them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them, says the Lord. 
look over the page at verse 22. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. And as you read through this description of the tabernacle, one of the things you would have picked up just in the description of the ark is just the enormous amount of gold that there is. So why all the gold? Why is everything overlaid with gold and made with gold? Well, gold is a symbol of God's presence. Gold talking about that which is fit for a king, the king of all the universe. And that's why we have crowns and jewels uh, made in gold or set in gold. Gold symbolizing back then for the Israelites the purity and the holiness and the perfection of God. So everything about the tabernacle is about the presence of God dwelling in the midst of his people. And right at the heart of the tabernacle, where we start in chapter 25, is the Ark of the Covenant. And then on top of the Ark of the Covenant is what's called the mercy seat or the atonement cover um, with, uh, um, with two cherubim reaching their wings forward over it. And God says, verse 22, there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. This is what it's all about, God's presence with his people. And there's a sense in which in Exodus so far, everything he's been building to this. So God has called his people out of Egypt, and he has broken the yoke of oppression that um, Egypt was inflicting on God's people through Pharaoh. And he has miraculously saved them through the Passover and taken them through the Red Sea. But it wasn't just about liberating them. As hard as the slavery was and as abhorrent as it was to God, the point of liberating them wasn't just for liberation's sake. God calls them out, and then he gathers them together and gives them the law. And now this is the climax, because having given them the law and made a covenant with them as his people, he sets up the tabernacle in the midst of the people, because here is the place when God will meet with his people. This is what it is all about. This is the climax in many ways, God's presence with his people. We're going to see this in a couple of weeks' time, but um, later on in the book of Exodus, in chapter 33, because the people are so rebellious and so sinful, morally flawed before a holy God, it gets to the point when God says to Moses, I can no longer go with you into the land of Canaan. I'm going to have to leave you behind so you can have the land of Canaan. I'm going to deliver you into that, but I can't go with you. Let me just read it to you, Exodus chapter 33, verses 15, 16. Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Do you see what Moses is saying? He's saying, look, Lord, if you don't go with us, we can have all the blessings of God. We can have the land of Canaan. We can have the most rich and fertile land. We can be the envy of all the peoples. But if you're not with us, dwelling in the midst of us, it's all pointless, it's a waste of time. He says, I will not go unless you come with us. What sets us apart as your people is the fact that you are with us. Now, I just think that's hugely important for us because very often, even as Christians, we often say, well, the reason that I'm a Christian is because God gives me all these things. Blessings, good blessings, forgiveness of sins, the future of an eternity with him personal change in our lives, the church family around us, the wisdom of hearing the word of God and making sense of the world. But at essence, why are you following God? Because Moses would say, unless it's about having God's presence in your life, then really all the rest of that stuff is pointless. 
It's all about that. In other words, the supreme blessing of knowing God is not the gifts you get from God, but is God himself. God, the living God, the holy God, the perfect God, the father of all humanity, the father of those he saves through the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. That is what it's all about. The greatest thing God can give you is not a gift, but his own presence. It's about getting God, not getting gifts from God. I mean, you see this repeatedly in the Bible. David, for example, in Psalm 63, writes about a time when he goes into the sanctuary that is the temple of God, and he experiences something of the presence of God. And then one of my favorite verses in the Bible, he says this, Psalm 63, verse 3, because your love, O Lord, is better than life, I will glorify you with my lips. Think of who's writing that. David, the king, the warrior. He's got fame and honor and gifts and royalty and majesty. I mean, he's got everything. And he says, your love, O Lord, experiencing your love, having a sense of your presence with me is so much better than any gift this world has to offer. And he's tasted most of them. It's better even than life itself. He says, this is what it's all about, knowing you, experiencing you, having your presence in my life. Not only that, but you come to the New Testament and in Hebrews chapter 12, when the writer of Hebrews is articulating what it means when we gather together as a church, he could have listed many of the things that we are called to do, the reading of scripture, public prayers, encouraging one another, and all of those things are good things and they have their place, but he says this, but you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God. You mind me asking generally, why have you come today? What is it that you're coming for? Maybe friendships, maybe you want to be prayed with today, maybe to hear God's word preached, that's all good. But do you see that if it's not fundamentally infused with and all about and empowered by the presence of God, this is pointless. When we come by the Spirit, through the Word, we believe that God in His grace meets with us personally. There is no greater honor, no better blessing that this world has to offer you. Which is why the psalmist says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord, God of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord to come and meet with God. He says it's all about that. Now, I'm conscious that you may be here as a person who's not a Christian. Actually, even Christians often struggle to kind of get this because they often think, and we often think, well, look, I mean, that just seems a bit ethereal, the presence of God. Do I really want that in my life? And isn't it really about the blessings of God and the things he gives us? C.S. Lewis explores this in a great sermon he preaches, which was turned into an essay called The Weight of Glory. And in it, he argues that often people don't recognize it, but actually what we really want in our lives is the presence of God. And our every longing, our deepest yearnings, kind of give wind of that, even though we don't often recognize it for what it is. In that famous sermon, he calls it beauty. He says, you often notice it when you're talking about beauty. He says, if you notice when you see something very beautiful, maybe like a landscape or maybe like your wife-to-be um, walking down the aisle, in that moment of great beauty of a tune being played, there is both a sense of satisfaction, a sense of I was made for this, and a sense of yearning, a sense of it reminds you of something else that you are missing. 
He says it's a little bit like, um, you know, when you're homesick and you get a smell of home cooking on the breeze and you just suddenly, you're, you're not there anymore, you're at home and you're thinking of your mum calling you in for dinner. Um, or if you remember back to when you were a teenager or if it still happens now, you remember that kind of first love and the song that you shared that you're a bit embarrassed about now and then you hear it on the radio and it's like you're there at the school dance and you're having that slow dance again that's real to you and you just get that ache for a moment. This is what C.S. Lewis writes. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them because it was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols and break the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. He's saying whether we recognize it or not, we are all made for the presence of God. That's our greatest yearning, our deep longing. And there's a sense in which every human endeavor is a desire to get back to the presence of God, which we've lost since the Garden of Eden. And one of the things about the reading through the description of the tabernacle, if we had time, but you get a glimpse of it in chapter 25 and 28, is just the beauty of the tabernacle, just the sheer aesthetic of it. The finest linen, purple and blue and red, interwoven gold and silver and jewels. Not in that, not in the aesthetics that you see, but also the scent. It was filled with the most sweet-smelling perfume of incense offered to the Lord. And the reason is, is that the, the wonderful thing about the presence of God is not knowing about it in an abstract way, but it's experiencing it. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And you think of being there in the tabernacle and seeing the beauty and smelling the incense and being overwhelmed with the sheer beauty of it. And he says, that's just a glimpse of what it's like to know God through Jesus Christ now, to really experience him. Because when the Spirit comes into your life, he gives you a foretaste of that wonderful thing in the new creation when we will see God face to face and we'll go, ah, oh, longing satisfied yearnings fulfilled, appetites met, because I see God face to face. Friends, is that the beating heart of what you think Christianity is about? Because that is what the Bible says it's all about, to know God, to experience him in your life. There is no greater thing. But of course, there's a problem as we read on in the uh, tabernacle description because we come up against time and time again these barriers, and I want to look at the barrier of our sin. Turn forward to chapter 26 and verse 33. Chapter 26, verse 33. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. If we read it through, we would see that um, as you go through the description of Exodus 25 through to 31, what you first of all get is you start in the center of the uh, tabernacle. I'm going to pull it up. Well, it's already up here. There we are. We're doing very good on the slide today. Um, and you'll see in the right at the heart of the um, tabernacle, 
at the front there is the most holy place or the holy of holies. And in there is the Ark of the Covenant. And over the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat or the atonement cover where God has said he will meet with his people. And that's a wonderful thing right in the heart of the midst of Israel. But as you read through chapters 25 and on, it starts to pan out from that and starts to take us further and further away. And every time we get these curtains of separation. So first of all, we get a separation on top of the mercy seat with two cherubim over the top of it. And then we get um, the curtain between the most, the holiest of holies and the holy place. And then we get another curtain between the holy place and the courtyard. And the courtyard was where God's people go. Only the great high priest could minister in the most holy place and the holiest of holies. And so it's as if you like there are these barriers between God and his people all the way along. On all of the barriers, um, kind of engraved or sculpted or embroidered, were cherubim. Now, cherubim are angelic beings with uh, four wings, and they first come up in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, just after Adam and Eve has sinned, and God is pronouncing a judgment, a just punishment on their sin, and God says this, So the Lord God banished Adam from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so what's happening here in the text is we're being reminded that we cannot be in the presence of a holy God. He wants to dwell in the midst of his people, but we have no right. And we can't come into the midst of God and and his presence. Why? Well, because of something flawed in us, not with any lack of desire in him. But if we come into the presence of a morally perfect God, our sin will mean we're utterly undone. And so as you read through from out to in, We get the atonement cover in chapter 25, 17 to 22 in the holiest of holies. Then we get the presence, the bread of presence and the lampstand in chapter 25, 23 to 40 in the holy place. And then we get from that in chapter 27 into the courtyard. And then at the end of chapter 27, we are at the gate of the courtyard where this man is standing. It's as though in the mind's eye of the reader, we've been taken all the way outside of the camp and outside of God's presence and are now as far away as that man. And why? because of our sin, because the barrier of our sin. Now, I know that's not very popular in our late modern society, this idea that there is sin, that is moral failure before a holy God, and the idea that that leads to judgment, to separation from God. Those are two pretty much the most unpopular ideas you can mention. And we often think we've done away with such things, and isn't it wonderful that we no longer talk in such terms? It's interesting, when you compare the major world religions, they all agree on the fact that there is a problem with humanity, and there is a gap because of that problem between us and God, or us and gods, or us and the divine, or us and the enlightenment plane. In other words, they're all predicated on pretty much the same thing. There is something wrong with us. There is a perfect standard, and we cannot get to that standard. And all the world religions, apart from Christianity, are saying we have to do a number of things to get there. And you say, well, isn't it wonderful in the West we're more enlightened, we don't believe that anymore? Well, it's interesting, fascinating, really, when you look at it sociologically, that as religion has been on the decline and secularism has increased, so has counseling and therapy culture increased. There's wonderful blessings with that, and it's much needed in many ways. But what is counseling and therapy culture often predicated on? We are not the people we should be, and there is a big gap between us and the ideal. Do you see the similarity? Just taking God out of the equation. And here's the thing, so much of our striving in Western society is a sense in which we're trying to make up the gap between the real where we start and the ideal where we have a sense of where we want to be. 
and there's a gap there. But here's the thing. God does not come to us and say, you've got to bridge the gap. He comes and says, you never could bridge the gap. No matter how hard you try, you can't build a ladder between you and God. And before we deflect and say, well, that's not me, I'm not that bad, we try to explain that way in a myriad different ways. We compare to other people and say, well, there may be a gap, but my gap's not as big as hers or his. Or we deflect and say, don't be so insulting, don't lay that guilt and shame on me. I'm a modern person, I've done away with all that now, and yet when our head hits the pillow at night, we replay the day we've lived and we think, ugh, but I would be the person I long to be. The gap remains. In this city of London, so much of our striving So much of our efforts and our energies are about us trying to feel like we're enough, trying to be enough or do enough, trying to bridge the gap in our hearts, thinking if I can just get there, then I'll feel like I'm enough. And we get there and we realize there's still more to come. In other words, so much of human striving is about trying to bridge that gap. And God says you cannot bridge the gap between you and me, between my perfection and my holiness and your imperfection and moral flaws is a great chasm with many curtains of separation between. The way is shut. And as much as the tabernacle was a great blessing, it was also a powerful reminder that we are not okay before God. There is a barrier because of our sin. And wonderfully, God does not leave us there. Because as we read on after chapter 27, we get in chapter 28, a key turning point, the ministry of the high priest. We don't have time to do it now, but just as we've been taken out and out and out, as we've read through chapters 25, 26, and 27 until we're right at the outer part of the courtyard, just outside the gates, then we get introduced to Aaron, the high priest, and his brothers and his children. And at that point, we start to read the narrative, and it starts to take us back into the presence of God. Look with me at chapter 28, verses 9 to 12 on page 86. Chapter 28, verse 9. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. In the order of their birth, six names on one stone and the remaining six on the other. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones, the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Then mount the stones in gold filigree settings and fast them on the shoulder piece of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. Make gold filigree settings and two braided chains of pure gold like a rope and attach the chains to the settings. And you see back in verse 10 that they're to be born into the presence of God. The God takes, the, the, the great high priest takes the names to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. In other words, we've been taken out and out and out, and now Aaron comes along and he takes the names of God's people in to the presence of God. Look at chapter 28, verse 29. You see it repeated again. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastplate of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. So because of our sin, we have no right to be in the presence of God, and yet the great high priest, commissioned by God, takes the names of the people, symbolically engraved on an ephod, on the shoulder part of his ephod, so it hangs over his heart, into the very presence of God. So the movement has been from in to out, and now Aaron takes it from out to in. And in fact, as Aaron would walk that journey, as the high priest would walk that journey, let's just have a look again 
at the tabernacle and see what he would see. Because every step of the way, he would go past symbols that would remind him of the Exodus. Because the Exodus starts with God breaking the yoke of slavery. How? Through the Passover. And what's the first thing that Aaron goes past? The altar in the courtyard, a place of sacrifice, reminding him of the sacrifice of the Passover. And then God in the Exodus takes his people through the Red Sea, parting the waters. What does Aaron come to next? The basin with the washing of water. And then as he enters into the holy place, what does he come to? He comes to the lampstand, lit up. Why? Because God guided his people through the Red Sea by a pillar of fire, of light guiding the way. And then God fed his people in the desert with manna, with bread. And so what does Aaron pass as he enters in? He passes the bread, the table of the bread of the presence. And then as he enters into the Holy of Holies, what's the final thing? God does all of that in the Exodus. Then to gather his people around the mountain and to give them the law and to make a covenant with them, a covenant of grace, saying, I will be your God because I've forgiven you and redeemed you. And what is there in the center? There is the Ark of the Covenant inside the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law, the covenant of grace. You see, as Aaron walks that, he is reimagining He is remembering the Exodus and all that God has done to bring his people into his presence. You see, it's a great living reminder of what God has done. And the movement is not us to God, it is God to us through the high priest. It's a wonderful thing. We don't deserve to be in God's presence and yet he has done everything to bear us into his presence. And yet for Aaron, it was just once a year he was able to do that. The wonderful thing is that is just a picture of the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep a finger in page 87 and flick forward to Hebrews chapter 9, page 1207, as I just want you to really see how this lands in the Lord Jesus Christ. Page 1207, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration. In other words, the whole of the tabernacle system is a great illustration from God for the present time, now the time after Christ's death and resurrection and sending of the Spirit, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining obtaining, eternal redemption. In other words, the great high priest, the ministry of the high priest Aaron was a picture of Jesus Christ. And there are some great similarities and some great differences. Just as Aaron bore the hearts of, bore the names of his people over his heart, so Jesus really bears our names on his heart into the presence of God. Just as Aaron had to offer sacrifices, so the Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice 
once for all, taking us into the presence of God. But how much greater he is. Aaron could only go in once a year. Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us continually. So you and I can enter into the presence of God at any time and any place, and he's secured it for eternity. In order for God's people to meet with God, they had to gather around the tabernacle, just one place. You and I can be anywhere now because by the Spirit throughout the world, God's presence is now with his people. And in the new creation, we will experience God's presence across the whole of the cosmos. There will not be a place we can go where God will not be near and present and intimate to his people. Jesus Christ has done that for us. Aaron did it by offering a sacrifice of an animal. Jesus did it by offering his own blood as the great sacrifice. In the 2016 film, Hacksaw Ridge tells the story of um, Desmond Doss, who was a conscientious objector to bearing arms um, in the Second World War. And yet he still wanted to enlist and to uh, um, sign up for the American army. And he received great opposition to that because they were fearful that it would jeopardize his platoon. But eventually, he was able to secure that and go out to war. He got mercilessly bullied, both for being a Christian and also for the perceived threat he was posing to his platoon. Uh, his platoon were posted on the island of Okinawa to take what was called Hacksaw Ridge, a high escarpment with about a 40 to 50 foot cliff faced before it that had been held by the Japanese and that was of key strategic importance. One day they pushed and climbed up cargo nets up onto the top of the escarpment and there they came under heavy fire and they started to be massacred. And there was this private without a gun running backwards and forwards for up to 12 hours, putting himself in mortal danger so that he could save the lives of those in his platoon. It's estimated conservatively that over that time he saved between 75 to 100 of his men without a gun to defend himself, running backwards and forwards, dragging them, the physical exhaustion of it, making a makeshift rope and a way to lower them down. It was said that at the end of it he had no flesh left over his hands, because the ropes had shredded his hands completely and he kept doing it. He was so exhausted at the end of it, he had to recover for several days in hospital. Why did he do that? Because he sacrificed himself for others, his friends that he wanted to save. And yet that is a small picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ did because he didn't sacrifice himself for friends. The Bible says that whilst we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And he didn't just put himself in mortal danger he knew he was going to die. He didn't just make himself exhausted for a few days. His exhaustion killed him on the cross as he could no longer push himself up to breathe. Friends, he did that for you. He did that for me so that he could be the perfect sacrifice so that through him we can now have confidence to enter into the presence of God and to experience God anytime, any place, if we trust in him. Such is the sacrifice of our great high priest. He is the better high priest who constantly bears our names before the presence of God. Think of your name written on his heart as he sits at the right hand of God, bearing your name before the presence of God, saying, I'm here, accept my sacrifice. And now, whatever your name can come into the presence of God, is there any greater blessing? The great high priest has brought us back into the presence of God. We are permanently in the presence of God if we trust in him. It is the greatest blessing that God affords. There's a wonderful hymn we're going to sing in a bit. It says this, my name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. 
impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Let me just say two words by way of application. If you really grasp this, it will make you want to pray. Just at the entrance of the most holy place was an altar of incense where the priest would offer prayers. And the incense is symbolic of the way that they would arise before God like a sweet-smelling aroma. Have you ever thought that when you pray, it is like the finest perfume to God? It delights him. Think of the sweetest smell you can think of, where the scent of new buds on a spring day, where the home-cooked bread whether a nice aftershave you wear, whatever it is, the thing you think is the sweetest, that's what it smells like to God when you pray. And since you can pray to God now at any time, pray, enjoy him. That's what it's about. It's what you're going to be doing for eternity, enjoying God. There is no better blessing. Prayer, and second P, pleasure. Everything about the tabernacle was about beauty and aesthetics because to be in the presence of God, to know him, just for a glimpse of his presence, is the most beautiful thing. Friends, do you know that? Do you long for that? Do you catch yourself some moments thinking, that's where I want to be? Enjoy him. You get a foretaste now, this side of the new creation, and in eternity, you will have the banquet. So enjoy him. There is no better thing. Let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, how we praise you for the greatest blessing of all, the gift of your presence with us, your people. We don't deserve it, and yet, Lord God, despite our sin, despite the barriers of separation because of judgment on us, yet you call us back into your presence through the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Forgive us for when in our strivings we try to earn our way back into your favor. Convince us that we never could. Help us instead to trust the ministry of the great high priest, the one who intercedes for us, the one who has died once for all so that we might come to God and help us to enjoy your presence now and into eternity. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.